If you weren't with us last Sunday, we started a new sermon series called At Jesus, and it's going to carry us all the way until Advent. And throughout this series, we're going to look at times in the Gospels when Jesus issued his followers both invitations and challenges. So we're picking up this week, you heard the scripture this morning of Jesus' challenge to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now one quick note about this sermon series is throughout it, after worship, there will be a Q&A session for anyone who's interested. Know that you are invited and you're welcome. So for people in the sanctuary, uh, after the benediction, after the dismissal, you're welcome to stick around if you have any questions. People worshiping from home, if you go to oldtown.cc worship, there's a button that you can click to immediately after the service launch the Zoom for that Q&A uh, should you have any questions that are stirred up during the message, during the scripture reading, or anything this morning. Now this morning we're in Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. We heard Jesus' call in it. And my question for you as we start is, what do you think of when you hear the word repent? Does anything pop into your mind, any memories or any figures? For me, it conjures up some kind of unpleasant memories from college. I went to school just a couple hours from here at William and Mary, and there's a spot there in Williamsburg that is iconic. It is one of the prettiest spots on campus. It's called the Crim Dell, and there's a beautiful little pond, there's a painted bridge, and it is right in the middle of campus. It's hard to miss, and I think I passed it almost every single day going from class to class, or going from my dorm to the dining hall. It is a very busy spot at a crossroads of campus, and as you navigated campus, it was inevitable that you would cross a sidewalk passing this scene, the Crim Dell. And it wasn't only popular amongst the students. From time to time, people would come to campus with a megaphone and with signs and would post up right in front of this little pond. They would preach a message there because that is a spot where a message could reach a lot of people. Like I said, it was very heavily trafficked. So a couple of guys would stand on boxes with aggressive signs like the ones that you see here and tell the people walking by how sinful they were and how urgently that they needed to repent. And sometimes, I can remember very clearly, they would even single people out walking by who looked like they needed to repent. It caused quite a scene. It was unpleasant. And as I passed these guys, my friends and I jokingly called them the Crimdell prophets. When I passed them, I would be embarrassed if I was with someone who didn't go to church or for whom religion was not something they were that familiar. And I felt embarrassed as I thought, maybe this is their picture of what church is all about. They know that I care about it, Are they associating me with these guys? While this might work on some, and I'm open to hearing uh, an experience from someone uh, who has had a positive interaction, but while it might work on some, I don't think that many people, I don't think a majority feel the warmth of the church and the love of God through this type of messaging. I believe Jesus would have been both more relational and more gracious with the words that he would say if he were to preach 
in that particular spot. Now, these memories have colored my association with the word repent. When I hear it in Scripture and out of Scripture, I kind of think about this story. And at times, that's caused me to view it as almost a dirty word, like it represents a gospel of shaming others for their transgressions rather than communicating Jesus' gospel of grace. So with all of this talk of repentance in mind, this morning we're looking at a passage that leads with repentance and the demand that people repent. We saw in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now we're going to look closer at this idea of repentance. What does it mean? What is Jesus calling people to do here in Matthew 4? What's Jesus calling us to do? Because there is a very real challenge that Jesus is issuing to his followers, both that heard him speak it that day and to us today. And that challenge is is not about shame. It's not about embarrassing people for past mistakes. Today we're going to look at the repentance part of Matthew 4.17, but we're also going to look at the second part, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So we're going to examine these two parts of Jesus' challenge and see how they work together to draw us in towards God, both independently and together as God's people. Let's first dive in on repentance. In the children's message this morning, Sarah referenced some different translations of Matthew 4.17. And one where we see repent, there's a translation that says, change your heart, change your life. In the original language of the New Testament, Greek, the word for repent, it's metanoia. It's a verb that means a change of mind and heart. So when we hear repentance, when we see repentance in the Bible, repentance entails changing your thoughts and changing your actions. To be told to repent is much more than a rebuke. It's not simply a don't. Don't do this or don't do that. I want to encourage you this morning, rather than thinking about repentance as a response to one isolated action, You can think of a repentance as a response to the reality of who Jesus is. If we focus right in on Matthew 4, that's what we see this call to repentance being this morning. It's an action repentance is. Repentance is an action that boldly changes the way we view and associate with the world. Now, if we put ourselves in the shoes or more likely the sandals of one of those people in first century Galilee, who heard Jesus preaching these words, hearing repent would have been much less of a negative command and more of a life-giving mandate. Jesus is saying, go on and change your approach to life because of who I am and what I'm telling you. Remember, this this is the first sentence that Jesus preaches in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, as we're, we're thinking about repentance, keep in the forefront of your mind here that with repentance comes reprioritization. 
Jesus asks people throughout the Gospels to take a closer look at their priorities. What are your habits? What matters most to you? We see Jesus lean into this both directly and sometimes a little less directly through parables or through responding to questions with a question. In Matthew 4, we see this prioritization come in effect immediately after the passage we read. Jesus calls some of his first disciples who are fishermen, and he says, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of people. He's offering them a reprioritization on their calling rather than being guys who go out and catch fish every day. Jesus is elevating himself to a much greater priority in their lives and asking them to get on board and participate with him. So when we see repentance here, we need to remember that with repentance comes reprioritization. I want you to think about your life for a moment here before we press on in the text and simply ask yourself the question, what are your top three priorities right now? What do you spend the most time doing or thinking about? Where does your time go? Where does your money go? I want to invite you now to write those three down. If you have our sermon series notebook or a piece of paper or your device, just take a few moments and write those three priorities down on a piece of paper or cement them in your head there. I'm going to give you even some sacred silence to think about that for a moment. So list or mentally jot down your top three priorities in order. There are so many priorities that we can and that we should have. Our family, of course, our friends, absolutely, and ourselves, right? It's okay to put yourself on that list. Taking care of yourself is important. You might also list your job, your occupation, or your loyalty to your neighborhood, to your city, or to your country. Now, what you included on your list is not what's of the utmost importance as we think about priorities, but what tops your list is what matters most. Simply put, is it God? Is it loving God, spending time with God, learning from God, listening to God, getting out and serving God? So look at your list, sift through your list, And ask yourself, where is God on your list of top priorities? As we think about this in light of repentance, remember, repentance as we see it in this passage is not about shame. It's about responding to this challenge from Jesus to change your mind and to change your heart as a result of who he is. So a gentle question to take into the week as you continue to think about this passage is, do your priorities need to be rearranged? Repentance leads to new priorities. When somebody repents, their priorities are radically changed because God unquestionably sits atop the list of someone who takes Jesus up on this challenge to repent. Throughout this sermon series, 
throughout this sermon series, as I've mentioned, we're looking at Jesus issuing invitations and challenges. And this morning, we see a challenge to repent and a challenge to consider where is God amongst our list of priorities. Now, if we take Jesus up on this challenge, we have to prioritize our commitment to God over friends, even family, our loyalty to country, and of course, even our own self. And that doesn't mean that all these other things that fall below God on your list of priorities aren't important. But it does mean that with God above them, God can also be within your other priorities and within everything else that you're investing your time and your energy into. Jesus calls us to repent and In repenting, we're called to change our lives by changing the most important category in our life, priority number one. And in the process, we allow our devotion to God to trickle in to everything that falls below it. Jesus speaks loud and clear in Matthew 4, 17, calling us to repent, to change our heart and our mind and our life. And the call to repentance, that's only half the story of what we hear from Jesus this morning. Jesus calls for repentance because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. This reality, this newsflash was true for the people who heard Jesus speak it in Galilee, and it's true for us as we hear it and as we receive the passage this morning. If you look at the Gospels as a whole and read through them, you will see talk of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God all over it. You know, talk of the kingdom of heaven, talk of the kingdom of God, is arguably the most important thing that Jesus wants to communicate in his earthly ministry. This is really serious to him. And for Christians at the time and for Christians today, there's a danger of not totally understanding what is meant by this and thus having an inability to respond to this reality that Jesus brings forth. It's no wonder, I'll say it again, we can't miss that this is the first sentence Jesus preaches in Matthew and he really has two things he emphasizes from the get-go. Repent and the kingdom of heaven has come near. This announcement, this proclamation that the kingdom of heaven has come near is a total newsflash. If there was a Galilee Gazette newspaper 2,000 years ago, this assertion from Jesus would have been front-page news. It wouldn't have been buried in the religion category. It would have been leading on the front page as a matter that radically alters world affairs and the hearer's relationship with everything. The reign and the kingship of God, it's no longer a concept. It's no longer simply a doctrine. It is a present reality in Jesus. But let's step back in those first century Galilean sandals again to the Israelites who were the early followers of Jesus who heard this message, this had to have been a little confusing, don't you think? If the kingdom of heaven is near, why are they still marginalized? 
why are there still Roman soldiers in their town? Why are tax collectors still coming around and, at best, taking what is Caesar's? Jesus had something to say about that. But at worst, exploiting people and taking more than they're supposed to. As an aside, imagine being an early follower of Jesus and and trying to process, as a, a first century Galilean, what it means that God is here saying the kingdom of God is near, but then feeling frustrated when a Roman tax collector comes around and rips you off, and then being even more confused when you see Jesus befriending and going to the house of said tax collector. Fast forward to today, we believe Jesus' words that the kingdom of heaven is indeed near, but we have some similar questions to those earlier followers. Why is there still injustice? Why is there hunger, suffering, and disunity both in and outside of the church? What they experienced in the first century with this nearness of the kingdom of God, what we experience today, this can't be the finished product of God's kingdom, can it? Well, no, it it can't because it isn't. That's because we are living in a tension of an already but not yet. An already but not yet. This is an idea that's been brewing for a while You'll see shades of it in scripture and scholars have thought about it throughout the ages and it was explained most clearly to my ears in the last century by Dr. George Eldon Ladd. He's a professor at, was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary and he explains it as a tension, a tension between realization and expectation, between already and not yet. I'll say that again. It's a tension between realization and expectation. We have already realized and we are already experiencing the kingdom. Jesus said it has come near. We believe Jesus. We believe what we see him say in Matthew 4, 17. God the Son, Jesus has brought the kingdom of heaven to earth through his ministry and his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. But though we have realized God the Son, Jesus on earth, until his promised return, we won't see the kingdom of God in its fullness. Dr. Ladd puts it like this, the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus The age of fulfillment has come. The day of consummation stands yet in the future. I'll say that again with this already but not yet. The age of fulfillment has come. The day of consummation stands yet in the future. The kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus. We see him announce it boldly in Matthew 4.17. And still, even better days of life in God's kingdom are ahead of us as God has promised to return and to make all things new. So what do we do? What do we do in the meantime in this tension of an already but not yet? How do we step into this kingdom of heaven that 
we're told and that we know is near. We experience it and we share it through the church. There's a reason that we're called to be together and to follow Jesus together. And that's good news this morning. To think about what this means for us as the church and how we're to respond to these words from Jesus, I, I want to use the words of probably my favorite missionary and theologian named Leslie Newbegin, who, who called the church as a sign and instrument and a foretaste to the kingdom of God. He wrote, The church lives in the midst of history as a sign, instrument, and foretaste of the reign of God. So let's spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about how we, the church, can respond to Jesus' challenge and his newsflash in Matthew 4.17 by being a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of God's kingdom. It's one thing for us to hear what Jesus is saying in Scripture and to receive that this morning. It's another thing to do something about that. So let's dive into the sign, the instrument, and the foretaste. Let's start with signs. So signs have one purpose. They're to grab your attention. I live, I'm not ashamed to say it, uh, pretty close to a McDonald's. And they've had some signs recently spreading the word that spicy chicken McNuggets are a thing. And those signs informed me and I responded accordingly. I went straight to the drive-thru to receive more information and it was delicious. Signs serve a very simple purpose and the church simply needs to be a sign that directs people to God. Think about signs you might have followed this morning or the last time you went on a walk or on a drive. Most really effective signs aren't flashy. They're not over the top. They simply tell people where to go or how to get what they need. We've seen so many more signs right now in this age of a pandemic, and they're informative. They tell us what we need to know. So what does the world need to know about the kingdom of God? We are called to work together as the church, as a sign to direct people to Jesus. This entails clearly communicating who God is and inviting people in to experience the nearness of the kingdom of heaven with God's people. The church is living in the midst of history as a sign of the reign of God. Let's think about instruments now for a moment. An instrument simply serves as a tool for the one wielding it. Musicians use their instruments to make music. Scientists use their instruments to study the world. If the church is to be an instrument of God's kingdom, then we are the tools that God is using to spread the message of redemption to the world. Now, to take on the role of being an instrument requires humility and the realization that it's not about us. It's God who uses us, his instruments, for his glory, not the other way around. And as the church operates as an instrument of the reign of God, all the glory goes to God. This past Wednesday, here at our building, we hosted a blood drive. 
and I donated blood. And there were several instruments involved in that. They honestly make me a little uncomfortable, so I tend to just look the other way and, and let it happen. But the nurse who worked with me was great, and she knew how to use every single instrument. I mean, thank goodness, would you want to give blood if the person taking your blood didn't know what they were doing? Now, she did her work, and she did it very well, but once she got started, the instruments did everything else. She stuck me right here. She, it was a land on the first time. She said, just a pinch, and then the tubes and the bag and the machine that was pumping and receiving the blood, they all did their jobs. In fact, she walked away. She went out and had a snack. She was talking to other people. She trusted her instruments to accomplish the task at hand. And they did so perfectly. In the same way, God's kingdom is near and the church is an instrument of God's kingdom. We don't exist to get credit or to be in the spotlight, but we don't need any of that. When I gave blood, the medical instruments were not crying out for affirmation. They faithfully served their purpose. And as the church, we're called to faithfully serve our purpose to bring the kingdom of God, to bring God's kingdom nearer to people who need it. The church lives in the midst of history as an instrument of the reign of God. So we've hit on the sign, we've hit on the instrument. Lastly, the foretaste. A foretaste is a sample or a suggestion of what lies ahead. The foretaste that we've been loving lately at our house is this foretaste of fall that we've been having. We are so pumped for this new season of fall ahead of us. We have made the switch from iced coffee to hot coffee for our morning walks. The AC is off. I will not turn it on until March, maybe April. The windows are open. We're ready for fall. We have experienced this foretaste. Has anyone else enjoyed this cooler weather? It was nice this morning. We had the doors of the sanctuary wide open. But it's only a foretaste right now. It's a hint of what's to come because it's not fall yet. That happens on Tuesday. But with this bit of cooler weather, we know so much more of what's coming, of what awaits us in the weeks ahead. The changing leaves, the pumpkin pie, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Well, that's getting into winter, but... You get the point. It's a foretaste of what's ahead. And the church is a foretaste of God's kingdom. Together, we in the church and in our interactions with each other get to experience what the kingdom of God is like and we get a foretaste of what it will ultimately be like. We get tastes of heaven through the church, through each kindness, through each demonstration each demonstration of grace, each time we're encouraged, forgiven, loved, or embraced by our church community, these are foretastes of heaven. The relationships that we have with people who we would never know, who we would never care about if it weren't for our shared love for and unity around Jesus, this is a foretaste of heaven and a foretaste of God's goodness. 
the church lives in the midst of history as a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of God's kingdom. And I don't know how you feel about that, but I think that's a pretty awesome place to be where we find ourselves right now. We hear Jesus say to us this morning, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. We receive these words this morning not as a, a condemnation, but a challenge, an opportunity, a charge. It's a welcome for all of us hearing it to draw near to God, to draw near by looking more closely at our lives and examining our hearts and examining our priorities. But don't miss the newsflash Jesus drops in this passage. The kingdom of heaven is near. When we think about heaven, it's not just future, it's present reality. And that is really good news. This week, I, I encourage you, and I feel Jesus calling us to take him up on this challenge to repent, to change our lives, and to arrange our priorities around God. Because as we talked about, with repentance comes reprioritization. Let's arrange our lives around the fact that God is our top priority. And aligned around God, together, we the church can make sure that our neighborhoods and that our city can get a foretaste of this kingdom of heaven through us as instruments so that ultimately everybody can taste and can see that the Lord our God is good. Amen. Let's pray. God, we hear your words in scripture this morning. We hear your call to repent, and we see you putting it on our radar that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Help us live like we know this to be a reality. God, call us to be signs that point people to you, instruments who are able to do your work. And together, through our experiences, we want to offer foretastes of what this kingdom of heaven will ultimately be like. So Lord, take us and use us. Use us individually in our lives, with our families, in our workplaces, and use us collectively as a church here at OTCC. God, continue to speak to us. Continue to make the vision that you have for us clear as we continue to examine the challenges that you issue us and the issue us and the invitations that you offer. So Lord, we love you and we pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our King, our Lord. Amen.